Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Amay Luckin. Amay is a writer and performer from New York City. She's the weekend editor at Elle.com, and her work has appeared in Jezebel, Glamour, Lit Hub, Marie Claire, and more. Her first book, The Lonely Hunter, How Our Search for Love is Broken, is currently out and released. And we're going to be spending likely most of our time talking about that journey as The Lonely Hunter. So I want to welcome Amay Luckin to The Deep Dive. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. We had like a, a entire pre-conversation before we hit the record button that was topics completely unrelated to this book, but delightful conversation nonetheless. But I do want to spend most of our time, like I said, discussing the ideas in The Lonely Hunter. And of course, the book is a memoir. But what was really fascinating to me or, or my takeaways as a reader were the bigger ideas around love, intimacy, loneliness, and relationships as exemplified through your journey. So I want to give you an opportunity to, you know, maybe start with the personal and give a little bit of a tease as to what motivated you to write the book, The Lonely Hunter. Well, the book opens with a true event, which is not much of an event. It was a dinner party. And it was like such a not important evening. Like I didn't expect anything other than having dinner. Um, But I ended up having a conversation with some good friends about relationships. And they kind of opened up the conversation by asking me if there's anything going on in my romantic life. And at that time, I hadn't been with anybody in six years. Like I I think I'd slept with someone like once in the middle, but I hadn't dated. And I kind of like felt as though I'd come to the end of my dating life and like that wasn't going to be in the future for me. And usually I didn't talk about that very openly because I think there's a lot of discouragement around talking honestly about seeing yourself as someone who's going to like grow old alone for a lot of reasons. Um, The nicest being that your friends don't want to think that's going to happen to you because they love you and care about you. And that night I just kind of like, decided to tell the truth. And I said, I don't know if I'm ever going to date anybody ever again. And instead of like receiving that or being open to that idea, like what I thought would happen happened. And they were very like annoyed with me. We ended up having kind of a confrontation and it like, I think for them, it was coming from a good place. Like they were trying to say like, no, you're cool. You're pretty. Like you're fun. Everybody meets somebody sometime. And the thing about that is that if you've been single for a very long time and you're told eventually you'll meet somebody, you're kind of being put in this like liminal space of always waiting, waiting, waiting for that moment to happen. And then you get to like live an ordinary life, like all your coupled friends. Uh, And that feels really diminishing. And it feels like you can't be honest about like who you are right now, or like there's always something missing from your life as it is. Uh, And I felt angry about it, basically. But we kind of made our peace and I went home. And at the time I was writing for Jezebel.com and I um, asked if I could write an essay about it. And I did. And it was just like the story of our evening and about how I felt like I was always waiting for my real life to begin because I hadn't met anybody and how I don't think love is destiny. I think it's often like 
luck and timing and not everybody is owed it or inevitably going to find it. And the essay did really well. Like lots of people responded to it and felt like they saw themselves in that situation because I think being single for long periods of time is something we don't talk about very openly. So people feel very ashamed and they feel even more isolated within their isolation. So like all these people telling me, oh, I felt this, I've experienced this, I've been alone for so long, I don't see anybody in my future. It made me realize this was a conversation a lot more people wanted to have. I remember the, in the book when you talk about the article and all those things and, and that frustration, because when I read that, it, it zeroed in on a, on a couple of things for me that, that I would love to get your, your thoughts on. And I'm probably going to jumble them all up, right? Yeah. But <laughs> it, it, it feels like, because one thing that folks will, who are listeners of the show will, will, will know about me is that my questions tend to ramble. But <laughs> beyond that, I, they do that because I find like so much of these, of the issues that we're trying to pull apart are entangled, right? So it's, it's not the one thing, it's several things, right? So I, when I'm reflecting on that portion of the book and reflecting on your answer, one of the things that strikes me is that so much of our expectations around love and relationships tends to feel very much like an industry. Like we, in the collective sense of, of we, are being marketed solutions to our um, our finding partners. And, and this is not new, by the way. Like I feel back in the day, they had like Lonely Hearts columns, right? And then there's dating gurus. Like there's all these things that seem to have come along that are parts of um, selling your way into a solution. So I'm curious how much of your frustration was was part of just the way you felt navigating this particular reality of your life versus or part of navigating an entire industry kind of telling you that there's a solution if only you find it. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you brought that up as in like in those terms because I mean industries they sell you something after creating the need for it, right? And like I think marriage used to have a different meaning in terms of connecting families and um, creating links between groups of people. Like there were historically lots of different functions for marriage. And as like the ability for women in particular to like survive on their own and to be able to leave a marriage if it wasn't functional or good, marriage kind of needed a rebranding. So it's like, there's this book by Stephanie Kuntz called How Love Conquered Marriage. And it's just sort of about how marriage became really focused on love and the domestic sphere uh, and sexual intimacy and all other relationships outside of marriage began to be very discouraged relationships between, you know, parents and their kids, sisters, even friendships. Um, It was, especially in the early 19th century, it was like the beginning of really making queerness a thing to be like disgusted by like people used to have very deep same-sex friendships that were then becoming less and less important to their family unit. So all these industries that are trying to like sell us away to like self-actualize or become desirable or to meet somebody are also telling us we need to do those things. And if we don't manage to find that kind of relationship, there is something missing within us. And why do they want to drive people back to marriage? It's the economics of wanting to produce more people. And right now we're like living in a time 
where you can see this rising push to force people to make more people. There's like all this fear around the workforce, around making money off of new labor. A lot of people have died and they're just like seeing this gap up ahead of capital. Sorry, that's very conspiracy theory, but I basically think that's why we're being pushed right now into these family units um, on a functional level. So I don't know if that's the beginning of the answer. It's sort of convoluted. But I guess I, I, I think like marriage and love can be a really beautiful and wonderful thing. And many people embrace those traditions voluntarily or like through many years of participating in, in them and feeling comfortable and happy in them. But I think a lot of us are pushed to feel ashamed if we haven't managed to do it. And that shame is meant to drive us back into these family units we don't necessarily want or will find fulfillment in. Yeah, absolutely. And to a certain extent, there's a lot of really deep philosophical questions at, at work here, right? One of them being, you know, how are we defining love and intimacy in the first place, right? Like love is one of these topics deeply mythologized through poem and song and popular media. But who can say wh- like what it is? I think we know it when we feel it, but well, it's hard to describe. I guess I... I mean, I think I have a cynical answer about that and I'll say it, but I'm going to just preface it by saying I think love is a wonderful experience and I want more of it in everybody's lives and my own life. But we do have chemical reactions to other people that are sort of the building blocks of love. And so that feeling when you're totally infatuated with somebody that is like dopamine and serotonin and oxytocin, just like kind of revving you up and that feeling when you break up and you have that like horrible sense of loss and emptiness and loneliness that's the withdrawal from like that stimulating chemical soup they were (laughs) you know mixing up inside you and that doesn't mean like love doesn't have genuine sincere value i mean we are only our ability to perceive the world and experience the world through our bodies and our minds and our chemical hormonal stuff going inside them But it is like a very real thing that people who are maybe living lives that are unsatisfying or, you know, they don't, they have a void within themselves or they don't feel connected to their community. They think, well, if I fall in love, I'm going to feel good and I'm going to feel fulfilled and all of these needs that I have are going to be taken care of. And the reality is, is that a lot of people get into a long-term relationship and they're very lonely too. I think that married people... And people in long-term relationships can feel extremely isolated and lonely as well in the in this moment in time and the way things are set up. And I think like single people and married people actually have a lot in common that we don't talk about. And I, I think that like that answer actually asked me to ask the question again, in a way, right? <laughs> Be, because what you're detailing are the complexities of love, right? And and when I say that is there can be an ideal notion of love in this modernized ideal notion of love where all of your needs are now satisfied primarily, right? I'm talking in the most traditional term, right? Are satisfied by the one person, right? So you you go out there into the world, you find, you have your meet cute, you find your partner, and now this person clicks all the buttons, right? Like you've never wanted to fuck anybody else. Like they are your best friend and all, you know, all the stuff that people say, which 
in my always gives me pause, right? Because I'm like, I've dated lots of people. None of them have been my best friend, right? Like, because my best friend is a different relationship, right? And then by best friend, that's not even a gendered relationship, right? I've had best friends of both genders, right? Speaking in just that duality or really close friends at different times, right? Like all these things are in flux. So I'm, I'm still wrestling with defining that because the I think the broader our definition, the more likely we are to f- be able to encompass the complexity of this feeling. Because I, I, I do tend to be less of a chemical determinist because I don't, I don't think our, our knowing is just chemicals, right? Like, no, I, think, I don't. But yeah, I yeah. think what stimulates the chemicals is very connected to the idea of like cultural volition. It's like how we were raised, um, what our parents were like, what our environment was like growing up, what books or media we engaged with when we were like going through puberty. Like there's just so many different complicating factors for what will set off those chemicals within you. And that's why it really can't be boiled down to one definition because it's going to be different for everybody what like sets that off. And I've experienced love for people who who are like not good for me. And I don't think like that's like some holy feeling I have to chase forever. It's like they're setting off something inside me that is making me feel that way about them that may not be coming from the healthiest place within myself, right? But I think what you were saying about like one relationship supposed to hold all these other different relationships within it is sort of like harkening back to what I was saying about the rebranding of love. Yeah. Where like for kind of almost the first time in history, yeah, our lover is supposed to be like, the person we live with, our roommate, uh, our co-parent, our best friend, the person who like gives us all the like excitement of sexual intimacy and stimulation, person we like work out our financial goals with. And it's just like an enormous amount of pressure on yeah. a lifetime with somebody. And I think also people are very afraid to admit if they failed in that because it like calls into question this relationship they've dedicated so much of themselves to and depended so much on and they've been encouraged to let go of other types of relationships once they entered into this particular type of relationship this romantic and sexual relationship you know there's the embarrassment of like never being in a relationship never dating being alone and then there's the embarrassment of being in a marriage that's not functioning um in the way that you were told it should and in the way you were told it would in in that thought process do you think we're leaving enough room for the reality of the shifting landscape of what intimacy could look like. And what I mean by that is that love, like almost anything, can have diff- can mean different things at different parts of our life, right? And our, and our journey with a, a person or persons, right? And it sounds like what you're describing this implication of like the selling of love is selling almost like a static state of being that never changes. Right. Um, And it sounds like, well, I think what they're selling is very specifically Mm -hmm. this nuclear family. Right. And like anything outside of that, you know, there's this enormous backlash against the LGBTQ community. And like, that's, you know, partly this very cynical conservative, like ideology of making, a social issue into their like cornerstone uh, hate mongering campaign. Right. But it also is because, you know, queer people in particular are very much about exploring what gender roles mean, what relationships mean, what's possible within love and union. And that's very threatening. 
because they need people to be pairing up. They need people to be producing children. So like when I am describing is a very static state and I don't necessarily see that as love or as the like ultimate ideal of love that I aspire to at all. But I think when we're talking about like love as it's seen right now in culture, it's very old fashioned, but it's still very much the present. You know, I'm sure both of us like hang out with more alternative types than (laughs) most of America. But when you like go outside of that world of, um, you know, your friends and people you're close to and just like see how much of the world lives, it's like very much there and it's breaking down, but it's, it's very hard to escape mentally and socially if you've grown up in it. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I think it's, it's interesting when you're talking about the, um, the realities of um, LGBTQ relationships and, and other queer relationships when, cause you know, when we started this conversation offline, kind of talking about pop culture and different things on TV and I'm painting with a little bit of a broad brush, but when you do see depictions on in a lot of pop culture media, they tend to mirror the heteronormative realities, right? So if we're going to see those things, and, and this is not exclusively, right? But I'm just saying, like, if I think about even the show we were talking about um, <laughs> before we got on air, The Last of Us, right? This this seminal episode with Nick um, Hofferman, um, Offerman rather, mirrors a apocalyptic Miku that ends with two people kind of having this very fairy tale but yet tragic union, right? Modern family, right? They're this mixed family, <laughs> but they kind of live the the gay couple. Um, I don't watch the show very often anymore, so I, names are escaping me, but everybody knows I don't watch family. Show, but... They're very much like every, you know, just whatever, right? Well, I- I think like the main, like the machine, if we're going to talk about like this, like, (laughs) you know, monogamous two person relationship, like it's always trying to take whatever the new idea is and like suck it into itself and use it to its own aims. Like I, I myself like see myself as being in more, you know, more interested in monogamous relationships just because of my own needs. But I think like people who are actually experimenting with polyamory or relationship anarchy like even those things you can see getting turned to, you know, serve both a very individualistic society and a society that really like functions on making the couple, the individual. So like you'll read a book of like advice for people who are opening up their relationships and they often are not talking about non-hierarchical relationships. They're still talking about like getting your needs met. So your central like two person relationship can thrive. So I think that's like a very common thing to happen and I enjoyed that episode because, you know, it just pulled my heartstrings and I like, oh, yeah. but I saw a lot of criticism of it that I think was very valid about how it's like kind of just, yeah, maintaining the same old story, especially since so many queer characters end up dead on TV and in movies. Yeah. So in this case, they did live, you know, a period of life together as beautifully as they could under the circumstances. Yeah, they did. They did. And it, and it's funny because... I read a lot of laudatory things, didn't read a lot of critique, but I could see where the critique would come up. But I, I think it's also like you're seeing queer characters acting in ways that we don't typically see mm-hmm. queer characters, right? So the, you know, Ron Swanson character, because he's only going to be Ron Swanson to be primarily, <laughs> is a libertarian gun nut, yeah. right? Not this. Well, you can assume he's libertarian. You know he's a gun nut because he has like <laughs> all the guns in the world, right? That's not typically where you think of LGBTQ people, 
right? Yeah. In in media, right? Yeah. That's not where you you don't think that person is also going to be that, right? So I I assume the creators of that is like, oh, twist. Right. Well, I think that Nick <laughs> Offerman, like he's such a like del- delightfully charismatic actor. And yeah, everyone knows him as Ron Swanson, who is essentially kind of the same guy, like a libertarian yeah. who's into guns and meat and whatever, and yet still manages to be a decent human being. Like it's very much the fantasy, I think, of like a lot of like um, white men who would call themselves centrist or something. <laughs> they're like, they're like, I don't want any rules and I want to be able to do whatever I want. And I don't want government funding, but I'm a good guy. <laughs> and like, yeah. Like maybe Ron Swanson and then, you know, Bill on The Last of Us would be only two actual like versions of that I would find believable because they're played by Nick Offerman. I don't know. Absolutely. But I do think there are conservative like white gay men out there who probably, you know, shed a tear over the story too. Like they are out there. We tend to be very much about like putting people in categories, but people are very complicated. You never know. Absolutely. And the pursuit of love in as detailed in the book is... Uh, a complicated one, right? So you in earnest attempt to crack the code on this, right? And and so leaning back into the book, I want to talk a little bit about the journey of dating and like there, there were real actionable choices that you took to, I wouldn't really call it solve, but to better understand at least that's how I took it, right? Like you were seeking to better understand the nature of relationships and love and dating. And and you took this on as like a real project. So I, I want to give you the opportunity to kind of talk us through the thinking behind that and in some takeaways. Yes, I will. Um, because we were talking about definitions, I do first want to say, I don't know if this is the moment for it, but I think there is a tendency and I will do it myself while we're talking and I do it in the book to kind of treat the word single and the word lonely as though they're the same thing. And I think the part of the reason for that is like the stigma of being single, the assumption that anybody who's single is lonely. And I think it's also because often the solution offered to lonely people is to stop being single. And so they've like become intertwined, but they actually mean different things. And there have been times when I've been single when I've not been lonely. And, you know, actually there's been times I've been in relationships and felt very alone as well. And I think people can probably relate to that. So I just want to be clear. I'm sure I will end up using them interchangeably, but I think it's an important to think about why we do that and like why yeah. we connect them so firmly. And before you answer the, the original question, because I, in my notes, I have this point about lonely versus being alone. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just going to throw that seed out there because I did want to interrogate those realities. Because I think, as you said eloquently just now and is detailed in the book, that there are, there are people in relationships that, that feel very lonely. And there are people who are not in relationships who are fine right yeah. um or they're or they don't they're looking for someone isn't because they're lonely is right. it could be because of any number of different things so i I'm, we do use those terms so interchangeably the concept so i wanted to just underline that and and then you can go ahead and go off to the races there but <laughs> since, it, since it was in my no, notes I'm and you're reading and you're reading my it. mind <laughs> So, yeah, so after that essay kind of went semi-viral and a lot of people reached out to me and a lot of people were very positive, but of course, because it's the internet, I got some negative messages too, or just people who are kind of, to my mind, being kind of condescending and like, hey, you need an attitude adjustment. Um, You need to lose weight. You need to like 
work on yourself. Like, why do you even care about this? Blah, blah, blah. And it kind of set me off because I'm like a confrontational person at times. And I don't like being told what to do by anybody. And I also, yeah, I had like maybe a negative self-image from it too. It's like not easy to be told by so many people that there's something wrong with you. Even though I was a little bit used to it from being a writer on the internet. Um, So that month I, I wrote the, the essay was published around Christmas and in January, you know, that's kind of the month we all make resolutions. And so I did make resolutions with a group of friends and I was like, we were doing like a diet together. I'm not pro diet, but that's the reality of what I did. I was exercising for the first time in a long time because I kind of stopped doing those maintenance things. I put a lot of my energy into my career. I put a lot of energy into like performing and comedy but I was not seeing myself as a sexual person and I was not like thinking about my outward appearance in a way where I wanted to engage with it. And everyone was like, yeah, if you're hotter then you'll have a date. (laughs) So I was, you know, like I fell for it and I started to do it and it kind of worked. I lost a lot of weight and, um, you know, I started to like get my hair done. I started to do makeup, whatever. And at first I didn't intend to date, but as I was doing all this, like, external change something it shifted with me internally to a degree where I felt like oh I was able to do this I was able to lose 15 pounds I was able to like buy new clothes and fit into them and feel cute like maybe I could date but the thing is is like when I was losing weight I was getting so much positive reinforcement from people where it felt like the reason I felt good wasn't necessarily because I looked good or because I was exercising, but because people straight up treat you differently when you're thinner. <laughs> they treat you differently when you're more conventionally attractive. And they also, you know, I began to like draw a line between, you know, how people are treated when they're in a relationship versus when they're not. And maybe a lot of people are happy about being in a relationship, not just because they care about their partner, but because they are straight up treated better for having this validation of their like humanity of their worthiness through a relationship. And so I sort of like saw a line between these two things. So I was being treated better and I felt better because of it. Anyway, uh, a turning point came and I was like, I have to go out with somebody. I have to like get laid. (laughs) Um, And I don't write this in the book, but I remember it was like, you know, shortly after Donald Trump was inaugurated and it was like one of the first crazy things he did. He like dropped a bomb somewhere. I I should have looked it up before this conversation, but I wasn't going to mention it. But he dropped a bomb. I kind of vaguely remember that. Yeah. Yes. And I remember just being like, oh, my God, the world is insane. I have to go out and like live a little bit because I don't know what's going to happen, which continues to be the feeling now in 2023. It's just like gone on from there. And I downloaded a dating app, which I hadn't in a really long time. Um, I think I'd like used Tinder briefly when it first came out and I never met up with anybody. Uh, And there was a person on there who I matched with who I thought was attractive. And they were just like so persistent in a way that allowed me to finally say yes to meeting up with someone Like, I really couldn't take that step myself. I was so scared and it had been so long. And I finally did. And we ended up having like, you know, some sexual intimacy with each other. We didn't have sex, but. And then like afterwards I went home and I was like so thrilled with myself. I was like, you did it. Like maybe everybody was right. Like, (laughs) you know, you just had to work out and like love yourself, blah, blah, blah. And then like he ghosted me um, within a week. 
And, you know, it was very painful because I, he, you know, he's just some guy. He doesn't know what his ghosting is doing to me. Like, you know, it's not really about him, but I had put so much work into getting into this moment and it was such a public ordeal and everybody knew about me like being single for so long. And so like the effect of it, it really made me feel like, is there a way to date and never get hurt? Like to date so much that you're like an expert at it and rejection doesn't bother you and things not working out doesn't bother you. And so I made a resolution that I would go on two dates a week every week as a way to like practice and like get comfortable with dating again. And that's what I started to do. And the journey of, of doing that, because you, you, and I just jotted this down, this, this idea of, of like dating and having like a proficiency, yeah. which will negate or potentially lessen one getting hurt. And this is not going to be fully formed because you literally just said those words and I jotted this down, <laughs> but not getting hurt is, it seems to me, right? And so I'm curious, like a hard way to go into potentially looking for love. Yeah. I think what I was, you know, trying to do is figure out how to be vulnerable without being hurt because you do have to be vulnerable to experience love. Like that's just part of the deal. And, but, you know, like the thing about not dating for a long period of time, like it was sort of from my mid twenties to my early thirties. Like that's a very formative time for a lot of people becoming adults. And if you've like stepped out of a certain sphere, you're going to be a little naive and a little like immature. And I was like, I didn't understand really the implications of what I was trying to do. However, I do recommend to people who are interested in dating and haven't done it to go on lots of dates because learning to get to know another person and spend time with them, you know, especially if they're a stranger, it does take a certain kind of skill mm -hmm. and it, you'll definitely be less nervous and you'll be better about paying attention and figuring out what you're looking for and who you like. So I don't think it's like a totally impractical thing to do if you're trying to get back into dating, but for what I like was thinking about it as, as like a boot camp against rejection, then like, no, it's not a functional <laughs> solution yeah. to that. And, and, and that's what I was, was thinking because the, Love is one of those, and I'm no expert on love, right? So let me just preface it. These are just me listening to a lot of music, right? And um, and and the musicians say, <laughs> and, and living and living a life, right? That these things are fraught with risk, right? The first time you tell someone you love them, or the first time you realize that you are in love, right? Which is why I, because I remember I was giving a a, a talk at, at a marketing event. And this was like a few years ago in Moscow of all places. And in, in my work, I use a lot of this language because I hate business language, even though I was a business guy. So I've talked a lot about love and blah, blah, blah. And this guy asked like, well, how can I, how will I know any of this? Right? Like it's, it sounds good, but like, how will I know? And I was like, you, you know, right? Like, because you try to tell yourself like, oh, no, I don't. Because you have, when you have to tell the person you're nervous, Right. So my point to the backdrop is how do we get comfortable with the risk factors that are implied with sharing intimacy with another person, verbal or otherwise? Yeah. Well, I, I don't know if this comes out in the book. I think some of the thoughts that I think about it now have come since that story ended, but I think what happens with that is I, 
you can't avoid pain. Like it's just a part of life. Like that is the truth. But I think what happens is a lot of people put all of their emotions, all their sense of self, all their time and energy into this love of another. And uh, especially when it comes to romantic love, like this isn't your kid. (laughs) This is like somebody you're trying to build a romantic partnership with. I think it can feel far more devastating if you don't have things in your life that make you feel whole, that a community you can turn to, an artistic practice you love, a job that, you know, is fun and engaging, uh, like a connection to nature. Like there's so many ways to be a part of the world and to understand yourself within the world besides in relationship to another lover, you know? And I think like if there's anything that will help you with the pain of loss and love is knowing that you have this like wealth within yourself, this richness within yourself that is there for you always. Um, And that's like a very difficult thing to cultivate, but I think it's like one of the most worthwhile things to cultivate is the relationship with yourself. And it's interesting that portion of it. And when we talked about the loneliness piece, right? Because, you know, many, many folks have started to study this, this notion of loneliness to the extent that it's been called an epidemic, right? That at a time when we have, so much social media, we have so much technology, we have so many ways in which to connect, quote unquote, connect with one another. When when people are asked in studies how they feel, they feel more lonely, they feel more isolated. So we're, we we have this paradox, right? And so I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on seemingly weaker social ties somehow bleeding into our inability to better love one another. And I'm not just talking about romantic love. Right. Um, Well, first, I just think the term loneliness epidemic is so pathologizing of loneliness Mm -hmm. and it makes it sound like it's something that's contagious and you can catch from another person, which is like driving people even further into isolation. I also think there's so many people studying loneliness, but they all are coming at it from a different direction. And there are some people who are straight up trying to find like a medication you can take for loneliness. And I'm not anti-medication. I take, I take uh, antidepressants. So like, I'm not like, Oh, you should never take a medication to deal with emotional turmoil. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, is like a medication or any other simple solution is just not going to work if you don't have support networks Mm -hmm. in other parts of your life. And I think like we treat it like it's a mystery, like, oh, why are people so lonely? Because we don't want to just say, well, you have to work constantly to not own a home. Uh, People can't afford to have their own kids. They don't have time off to themselves. The planet is dying. Like there's just like a lot of reasons why people are struggling to survive, which doesn't allow for community building. Like people are exhausted. They're broke. They're sick. They don't have health insurance. Like a lot of the things that called get called social isolation are really poverty and like just a complete disconnect from hope. I think a lot of people feel very hopeless and they don't know where to go to fulfill that need. And we mostly just have like very distracting media and, you know, our phones or computer. It makes me sound very like a... <laughs> like an old person just being like, it's the computers these days. But I think what happens is like, if you don't have money and you don't have time, what do you have? You have Netflix or like, you know, like you have time alone at home. Like people are isolating themselves because they're in despair and not because like, oh, we have technology. (laughs) I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm getting like a little off the topic because I just feel like we're just like acting as though loneliness is this thing divorced from the realities of living today. 
and it's not. It's like part of the way life is set up and, it, and to actually make change would mean making enormous economic and social changes. And that's why people don't want to deal with it. And they're like, why don't you get a boyfriend well, <laughs> as an answer? <laughs> or those big soft pillows, right? That are like yeah. supposed to be like people, <laughs> you know? I do like those. <laughs> I do like the good pillow in it. Um, I actually don't think this is off the track at all, right? I, I think this actually is the track, right? Because one of the... You know, in my, in my jumble of, of notes, I, I thought about like relationships are often um, framed as a transaction, right? Like a lot of these apps are built, you know, much like Uber or in any app, right? It doesn't matter um, whether you're delivering food or delivering a human being for a date. They're the middleman, right? Like that's how Silicon Valley frames everything. Well, we're just creating the market exists. We're just creating the mechanism for people to step into it and boom, things happen, right? But what you are describing is a, a different type of thinking. And what I'm trying to, I guess, tease out is the ability for communities to create structures and systems that counteract to the extent that one needs to loneliness, right? You know, because back in the day, I'm not going to like, I don't, I never like make back in the day some like happy place, right? Because I'm like, I'm a 50 year old black dude, right? Black back in the day was dangerous, <laughs> right? And so I'm, I'm not looking for people to join like the Elks and think that that's going to like solve all their problems. But, you know, I do come from communities of multi-generational living, for example, right? Where lack of inclusion in the mainstream meant you had to build very strong infrastructures in order to survive, right? My family, immigrant family, and when my dad moved to the United States with his best friend at the time, left my mom and sister in Guyana, they moved in with a older Guyanese woman who had been here before, right? And, and she was the gateway to any young Guyanese person in the 70s. And so some of those ties are broken due to, you know, hypercapitalism. So I'm curious in your journeys how confronting some of those realities, could you talk about like working as a freelancer and basically writing around the clock that doesn't sound like it leaves a lot of time for relationship building. And I'm emphasizing not just relation, not just romantic relationships, right? The relationship of chatting with your dry cleaner. Yeah. These like, not a lot of time for that. <laughs> yeah. And I think also like those types of connections are really diminished. Um, actually, with something you said about the apps being the middleman. I say something like that in my book because I do think it's true that like these apps, not only are they like inserting themselves to make money off what used to be kind of a direct interaction between people or a direct transaction with people, they're also like encouraging us to like degrade our our vision of what another human being is. Like a person's not a person, they're a door dasher. Like a person's not a person, they're my Uber driver. Like we have all these little people providing us with services, but the way that these apps work is they kind of like violate worker protections. They take money off the top. They demolish competition and then jack their prices up so it's like it's they're degrading how we see other people they're degrading how we see like expectations around pay 
and the service industry. And they're also like an app that you use instead of talking to a person. You don't call up a restaurant and order your order and talk to another person. I think when lockdown started, people started to understand this a little bit better. I don't know that it's really improved, but what it means to have like um, a tie to somebody who's not your in your intimate circle. Like this is like the person you know down at the bodega who always like sells you your potato chips at night or whatever sees you coming home. Like somebody at your local bar, uh, the person at the dog run or whatever. Like there are people who we don't need to necessarily have these deep connections to, but they make up a part of our world in a really meaningful way. And when lockdown started, people were like, oh, I can't just casually chat with anyone anymore because we're all afraid of COVID. And I don't see like the people from my yoga class anymore. I'm not going to yoga class. <laughs> like, And what you're describing is much more intense because it's about creating a network of like safety and transition and you know support in difficult times and i do think that like you know hyper capitalism doesn't want us to have those ties because like what do those ties lead to organizing like those ties lead to demands for something better those ties lead to like power shifting to communities versus like this hierarchical system of capitalists at the top i don't know if that answers your question no it's good i mean well one thing I've discovered about this show is that we very felt seldom have like nice, neat, tidy answers. Just <laughs> no, more... I don't really have answers. I just, you know, for me, the book I hope is like a place where people read and think about like the way they're relating to others romantically, friendship wise, community wise, and like where they want to make a change because there's so many different topics connected to loneliness and to social isolation. And like we were saying in the beginning, like transformation is not sexy. It's like slow and steady. And I really just would want people to be like, oh, this is this. Like, I want to work on prison abolition. Like, you know, I want to work on like uh, mutual aid in my community or like whatever it is that to you is this clear block to community building, to uh, people having healthy relationships to one another, to people being safe and cared for within community. Like pick a thing. Because we all need to be doing whatever this little thing is with our time here on earth. And, you know, I think for me, the book is like about dating and love and sex and stuff, but it's also just about like, how can I make myself a part of the world in a way that is like fulfilling to me and enriches the world at the same time, even Absolutely. if it's small. Yeah. Cause we, these relationships of all types are, are super important. And I wonder also as someone who, you know, like you said, you took on this project of dating and becoming good at dating. Is it odd? Because like you said, there's there's people who struggle with these things, right? So my, my, I'm posing the question not to make light of that. But, you know, as someone who's never really been, not never really, I've never been on a dating app, right? It's like, is it too easy to like interact with people right now? And what I mean by that is like back in the day, because I'm old, um, you know, we had to get a phone number, right? And, you know, and to get that phone number, you had to turn nothing into something, right? Like you had to see someone, identify you wanted to talk to them and approach them. And from that interaction, you had to pull out a number. And from that number, you then had to call and make a plan. And once that plan was made, you called on Tuesday for the date on Friday, right? And once you made the plan, that was the plan because there was no way of connecting again to change the plan. 
<laughs> right? So I'm never saying plans weren't broken, but if you said you were meeting at seven at the Barnes and Noble on 84th Street, which doesn't even exist anymore, that was it. <laughs> right. Because you you were coming from work, there was no way, there were no cell phones, there was no way for them to reach you. So that was it. <laughs> right. So I say all that to say that now it feels like folks have the ability to like, oh, I could just go on your Instagram and learn everything about you, right? Like, so I'm all often like, well, what's the point of the date, right? Like if I'm going to do all this sleuthing beforehand <laughs> to know everything about you, why am I having this conversation, <laughs> right? Hmm. So it's like- um, <laughs> have- That's funny. I feel like you're saying a bunch of different things. And like, one, I don't uh, totally object to sleuthing just for safety reasons, but I do think- um, Okay, so with dating apps, I do think it makes it easy in one way where, like, yeah, you have this illusion of access to all these people at once. Then you can just go through the list and, like, pick the cutest person. And then there's bound to be another even <laughs> cuter person behind them. And you just keep going and going and going. It's a and cute you infinity. <laughs> yeah, it goes to infinity. Like, there's an infinity yeah, number infinities. of, like, eligible, sexy singles who want to be with you. Um, so it's like easy in that way, but like the, the ease has this very high cost, which is like not being able to make a decision, feeling like you're playing a game. I think like Tinder, especially, you know, all these dating apps are really designed to feel like you're playing a game so you don't leave. So you keep coming back and it's addictive to keep swiping. And I think people's attitudes around dating have changed drastically. I'm not going to blame it entirely on dating apps because I do think it ties in again to like capitalism grinding people down and people getting really sensitive and weird about money. And I think it also is really tied to this resurgent, like patriarchal anger around bodily autonomy and (laughs) all of those things. Like, I mean, even the rise in podcasts of like the Andrew Tates of the world, like that is a really scary trend. And I think they're all connected. So people's attitudes around what dating is, has like severely like seriously changed. And, and I think in a very negative way, Mm -hmm. largely, but in terms of ease, like, I mean, I'm 39, I'm turning 39 next week. And I, like, I didn't really get on dating apps till I was in my early thirties. And I used to do really well in my twenties. Like mm-hmm. I lived in a group house. We had parties all the time. It was easy to meet and hook up with people in a totally different way that now I feel is like not really accessible to me as like an yeah. older person who's not partying and with everybody on their apps all the time. And when I say easy, it's like, dating like life to me is about discovery, right? It's about having the conversation, like walking into a bit of wonder, right? And when you have the ability to like go through all the stuff and like, I already know your favorite song. I already know what movies you've seen. I already know what, you know, I know all the stuff, right? So where is the discovery? Because through the discovery comes, like, to me, the work. And and this should be, like, joyful work, right? It shouldn't just be, oh, I just went through your Spotify and now I know everything. Or, or what, you know, all the things that people talk about when they first meet, right? Which are, you're looking for connections, right? And I feel like people are self-selecting into already knowing, which makes it all seem like I could just keep doing that. Because you didn't have to earn it. You know, <laughs> yeah, I kind of understand what you mean. I guess, like, I think that we're seeing the problem with it differently, and I understand your perspective. For me, the problem is, you know, more this like issue of people not really wanting to be in relationships because of the constant like flux of new possibilities. 
I think for me, like I am pretty good about meeting new people, even if I know stuff about them and learning more. I'm really curious about others and I want to, you know, there's always more to know. It's like, you never really know anybody. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I find that stuff. We're all an enigma. Very interesting. <laughs> yes. So it doesn't bother me to learn stuff about them from their dating app ahead of time, I guess. But I do think it, you know, finding the energy within myself to go talk to a new person and like get dressed up and try to be cute. Like that is harder <laughs> at this point. Yeah. I could, I could see the, the challenges in, inherent in, in all of this. Right. So I'm, I'm keeping an eye on the time and I want to make sure that we leave enough time for the final two segments of the show off the dome and, and the drop. So I want to get us out on sort of a future facing perspective, right. As, as someone who has, has done such a masterful job of, of navigating this search, right. That defined as, as a hunt. And I'm not asking for a pessimistic, optimistic kind of answer, but, you know, as we look out into increasingly uncertain times for all the reasons, I think we've kind of danced around on, on the show, you know, is there a sequel? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well, you know, the book has sold pretty well in the UK, and then it's going to be published in Taiwan. It didn't sell particularly well here in the US, as far as I can tell. So probably not, because no one will buy it. But <laughs> I uh, maybe I'll find well, some other way A sequel to... of more learnings. Maybe it's going to be your godfather, too. Yeah, I mean, I would love to write another book about this, because... You know, the book sort of ends when I'm around 35 years old. I'm turning 39 next week, as I said. A lot's happened in that time. So obviously in that four years, the pandemic happened. Like so much has happened and changed my perspective on loneliness and and myself and my relationships to love. So I definitely have more to say. And I think I've heard from a lot of people who have read the book, their own like thoughts and feelings about it. So that's also complicated the narrative for me. So I'd love to write a a follow-up, but I don't know if that will ever happen. Okay. Well, I'm I'm one of those people throwing my hat in the ring for a follow-up because I... <laughs> well, thank you. I'll tell my publisher. <laughs> I, I fully enjoyed the saga, right? Thank like, you. I, I think it's a very, um, you know, it's a, it's a very human thing to seek connection, right? And of, of course, the, the intimacy part of connection, I think, is what gets everybody's kind of, boom, first titillated by something. But I, I found that your meditations on things were were far more um, intricate, and hence I'm rooting for that for that sequel. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. <laughs> who knows? Who knows? Yeah, we, who knows what the world will will bring? Right? We didn't see the pandemic and Trump coming, so here we here we are. <laughs> yeah. So only horrible things <laughs> we're not expecting on the horizon. Well, we're going to get some joyful things too. It's mostly good things more so than the bad things. Even someone who's kind of grumpy like myself can see that. Um, I wouldn't do this work if I didn't think it was more (laughs) good than bad. Um, So as a master dater, I have like a couple of off the dome questions, right? Okay, yeah. The first one is, what would you say is the worst place to have a first date? And conversely, the best place to have a first date? Whew. Wow. Okay. So uh, for me, I don't think a lot of people are going to agree with me right now because there's this like idea of forcing your date to show effort, which I do think is important, but I think effort can be indicated a lot of different ways. I really don't like to go out for food with somebody I've just met. I don't like eating in front of someone when I'm trying to talk to them. I don't really like watching another person eat. 
actually like eating alone. <laughs> and also then you're like stuck there. And the issue of who pays for what has become such a hot topic in our culture for some reason, especially within heterosexual dating. Yeah, that's a big and one. And it's a big one. And the thing is, is like, I will always offer to pay for myself, but sometimes I'll like go on a date with somebody or I have in the past where they order a bunch of food and it kind of, you get in the vibe that they're going to pay and then they don't. And it kind of feels like a setup. So like now I'm splitting the bill for food. I didn't even really want to get or order. So it just like kind of drives me crazy. This like unspoken, like dance around the bill. So I will not opt to go out for food on a first date if I can avoid it. (laughs) Unless the person is explicitly like, I'm going to take you out. But even then it's like kind of a weird thing on a first date for me but i know that's like a cultural thing everyone feels differently about it and then the best place for a date huh i really love a walking walk in the park date myself i feel like walking like lends itself to to chatting and and doing stuff i've also been invited on like dates where it's like an event like an art thing or you know just like having something to experience and share together can be really fun and nice And, like, it's the effort thing. If somebody's like, hey, I looked up this thing, like, it's a free uh, concert or whatever. Like, to me, that's, like, just a level of thoughtfulness and engagement that I think is attractive. Yeah, those are all, I think, really very viable things. Art dates are good, too, because oftentimes, like, galleries will provide the snacks and the the wine. Exactly. There you go. (laughs) So that's... (laughs) I want some cubes cheese and a little Malbec. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It's always a Malbec or yeah. a Sauvignon Blanc, one or the other, you know, or both. Yes. If there's a red <laughs> and a white, it's going to be a Pinot Grigio, a Sauvignon Blanc, and then a Malbec, right? Well, if I drink white, I'm getting crazy. So. <laughs> <laughs> and they and they might also have like one beer. As, as a non-beer drinker, I'm always like, who cares? Right? I've never but, seen beer at a gallery opening, I don't think. Really? There's always like Maybe a, like PBRs a, when I was in college. It's almost like a like a, a Brooklyn brew or something that they could just. That's true. They do donate to a lot of events. Brooklyn yeah. Brewery does. You're right. Yeah, just kind of pop it open, right? And, yeah, and, I guess I'm thinking more like Chelsea. You know, when they have all the free nights and everyone goes through and <laughs> takes yeah. all the wine. Good cheap date, and then walk on the High Line. Boom. Exactly. Perfect. <laughs> See, that's a plan. I think like the best dates are like somebody made a plan. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And that's that effort that I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Like yeah. effort like extends said. beyond money. It's like about care and like thoughtfulness. Yeah. You made, you made a plan. Right. And yeah. I think that's what, when I talked about them old school days, you had to make a plan. Now right. I feel like everyone's just kind of sitting around swiping to the last minute and they're like, Oh, you're three blocks away. Right. Let's I know. I mean, I've had like very casual dates like that. <laughs> and that I'm ended up well, <laughs> yeah, it's like, but for me, it's just, I mean, I'm older now, too. So if somebody's not, like, offering me a, fun, a really fun opportunity, I'd rather do my own thing or go out with friends or something. Yeah, absolutely. I'm like, that's what books are for. <laughs> I got a pile of them. <laughs> so <laughs> my other off-the-dome question is, in your mind, is there a best city to be single in versus another? Wow, that's a really interesting conversation. So it really depends on who you are. Because for me as a woman, I felt like when I was in Austin, I just cleaned up. (laughs) Because I don't know what is going on over there. It might be hard, you know, and also like the idea of getting dates versus like having a partner is very different. 
I don't know that I would have found like a long-term partner there, but in terms of like being able to get a date with somebody who's like very good looking and attentive, men are just like on the ground there. I don't know what is going on, (laughs) but it's so easy to get a date there with somebody who's like, you know, a, a 10 or whatever. And then I would say like, I actually like LA better than New York for dating because in New York, there's this very strange dynamic where there's so many beautiful women here. And then there's a lot of wealthy men who are like, you know, various levels of attractiveness, but it just feels like there's this constant competition for men. That's such a kind way of putting that. I I can't let that go without noting the the charming way in which you you phrased that. That was artfully done. Well played. Um, Continue. (laughs) I just think it's a lot harder for single women in New York City to like find men on their same level in terms of like either attractiveness or like being in the same place career wise or whatever. I don't know what it's just like imbalanced. And I've noticed that and I've had men tell me that too, where they're like, yeah, I can get so many dates here differently than in other places. But in LA, I feel like there's like a lot of hot women, a lot of hot men. Like there's like more people within your category available to you rather than everyone fishing in your pool. (laughs) Uh, But people are very flaky there too in the traffic and driving around. I'm trying to think of other places. I mean, anytime I go to Europe, it's like very easy to get dates for me personally. I think partly because like tourists are just known to be easy marks, I guess, because they know you're just like visiting and having fun. But I do think there's also like a very different attitude towards dating there. Like when you talk about the pay thing, like I feel like I never had to pay for my drinks when I was there. And honestly, I appreciate that. Like, I feel like women are discouraged from saying that. Like we're like all gold diggers because somebody, you know, someone bought me a $6 bottle of glass of wine. It's like, it's just like gracious. It's like someone being like, Hey, I know, it's probably more of an effort for you lady to look good and show up than it is for me. And it's like potentially more dangerous for you than it is for me. So let me just buy you a drink. I think it's nice. And so it's like a lot easier to have dates that feel like positive and fun there in my experience. Yeah. I I, I would also volunteer that um, wine is much cheaper in Europe. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which fine. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, that's like, not I mean, an argument against. Hour, that's just an know, observation, right? Wine used to be like the cheaper alternative when you went to a bar or something. And now I feel like, why am I staring down like a sixteen glass of a sixteen dollar glass of wine? That wine used to be like seven bucks. That's why like, you buy a bottle and you go to the park. It's perfect. Yep. <laughs> Prospect Park band shell. Yep. That's a that's a, I've been on that date. That's a nice date too. For sure. Free concert, sometimes a movie. Oh, and yeah. you can br- and you can bring your own you shit. You lie on a blanket together. Yeah. <laughs> it's all very, very meat cute. Um, so I want to get to the drop and the, the drop is just an opportunity for us to share anything at all that our listeners should be aware of is a recommendation. So I'll go first. And my recommendation is, um, to explore the discography of, um, De La Soul. Um, unfortunately at the time that we're recording this, um, one of the three members of De La Soul, Plug Two Trugoy died yesterday, Sunday. Oh wow! Um, I actually saw someone post about that. I've forgotten. Yeah, yeah that's very sad. And and it's it's been a, a reckoning for a long time because I emotionally am very attached to the group. I grew up in New York. Everyone knows this. That listens to the show. And De La Soul was one of those groups that came along that I I think is is one of the most important groups in music. Period. Not just hip hop because people like to segregate 
like, oh, they're such an important hip hop group. And I was like, no, they're an important group. And their music has infamously not been available on streaming sites. And it is now going to be available. And then tragically, one of their pioneers dies and does not get to reap the benefits of this longstanding fight with the extractive and evil natures of the music business and capitalism writ large. So when De La Soul becomes available to listen on streaming sites, or you can go on YouTube and listen to them, I implore folks to know their music. It is some of the most important music, period. So that's my drop. Get to know De La Soul. You will be happier for it. You're up. That was like such a profound and well thought out drop. And I feel like I can't follow it. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> you um, can believe me. You can. No well, pressure you, for when the you, drop. I read your note about this and I was like trying to think of things that connect thematically to the book. I would definitely recommend anything in the bibliography of my book because I feel like they all touch on these subjects in different, very specific ways. But I was thinking about TV and like, there's a show uh, called love life by Sam Boyd. And it's just like each season is about a different person's experience with like discovering and finding love. And what I appreciate about the show is that it's like not super dramatic. It's about like kind of like the little things that build up to who we are and our, how we think about love and other people and our failures and successes within that. And I just think it's also like pretty well acted and enjoyable. That is a great drop, both on the bibliography and on on Love Life. I I will say two things editorially about Love Life. I only watched season two because a better season, I think. Yeah, that's where the black guy was. So I was like, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) like like Issa Rae says, I'm rooting for everybody black. So I went with I, you know, I like Anna Kendrick too, but I didn't care (laughs) enough to watch (laughs) the first season. Um, But season two, I thought was amazing because it it oftentimes when people show like black love on film, it's corny. Mm-hmm. And I watch it and I'm like, nobody would do these things. <laughs> right. And I didn't get that from this and quite the opposite. I thought it was actually very real, but I, I will highlight that. Unfortunately, HBO max, which had the streaming, they removed it. Um, I know. HBO max is crazy. What yeah. Which, doing? <laughs> which sucks. Right. Like, it's, it's sort of been the catch-22 of streaming, right? That they giveth and they take it away, right? <laughs> with, with impunity. I know. I have a lot of friends who work in television, and it's wild to put so much time and energy and hope into a creative project like that. So many people work on it, and then it's just, like, gone because they don't want to pay taxes on it. It's, it's awful. Yeah, it's awful. And and we don't have a DVD, right? Like No, we don't have DVDs anymore. Gone, you know? So, again... We need more guillotines in this world, but that's a that's another yeah, for show. For love life. <laughs> <laughs> that's another show. Lopping off heads for love life season two. <laughs> but May, I want to thank you so much for being on on the deep dive and you know joining me on this little journey through your your dating adventures. And the book is wonderful. It's a it's a great read. It will make you think far beyond just love relationships in the way we classically think about them. I think there's a lot of lessons um, deep within the book and I want to thank you for sharing it and I'm going to keep asking for that sequel. So thanks so much for being on the deep dive with me. (laughs) Thank you so much for your kind words and for having me as a guest. This has been a great combo. You can listen to the deep dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. 
If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.